ready. One note I wanted to make before we jump into the message. Um, many of you know that Al Blumen's birthday was this last week. He became 80 years old, and he's not here today. They were supposed to be back from Boston. Uh, they'll be back next week, but I want to share a story about Al. Um, when he was four, five, six years old, uh, the, the Nazis rolled into Latvia. He's originally from Latvia. And the Nazis came to his house. They knocked on the door with their guns, and they told his family to get out. You have 24 hours to get out. Al took his clothes and what he could pack in his little suitcase that he could carry because his parents had to carry everything else, and off they went. And for one year, they hopped trains. You, you know, like in the movies where the, you see the guys running alongside the train and they hop in the freight cars? That was his life for one year as they bounced from city to city, from town to town, from farm to farm, as they were trying to avoid being caught in the battlefield as the Nazis were conquering Europe. They had no hope. They had no idea what they were going to do. Al has told me uh, on a number of occasions how scared he was as a little boy because he didn't know whether he was going to live the next day or not. And they finally received some word um, that they had relatives in Boston and they were somehow able to get in touch with those relatives. So the State Department and everything else, they immigrated to Boston because their relatives vouched that they would take care of them that they would be of no burden to the United States government, to the state of Massachusetts, or anybody else, but they would take care of them. And so they settled in Boston. And long story short, they, he meets Sandy one day in Boston, they get married, and then they um, come out on this great adventure out here to Phoenix, Arizona, about 40 years ago. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle that he's alive today, to be able to um, endure what he endured for a year. And we don't do this often, but um, as Sandy and I talked, we thought it would be very, very cool if each one of us or each family could give him a birthday card when he returns next Sunday and celebrate the fact that he is 80 and he is full of joy, that he is a follower of Christ, that he survived what many people did not in World War II. So please make a note of that. And if you can, if you can remember, I'll send out an email, but if you can remember, um, every family bring a card for him next week. We'll have a little basket out front and we can put those cards in and we'll present them to him uh, during the service next week. As we dive into scripture this morning, I am so glad that I am preaching this chapter because it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. If you would, bow your head with me and let's ask God to help reveal his word to us. Father, as we come to you, we ask that you do reveal your word to us in a way that will strike our heart still, in a way that will revive it and cause it to leap with joy for what you have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles. If you're not quite sure where Romans is, there's a pew Bible uh, that you can pick up and look in the table of contents and you'll see Romans and flip to chapter 6. If you have one of those uh, fancy phones with a Bible app, it's just about three clicks away. And as you turn with me, 
This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture because it shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt of how God has acted on your behalf to turn your life around. It is one of the most important chapters in Scripture because it explains how to subdue sin. Not conquer it, not exterminate it, because Christ will do that when He returns. But how do we subdue it? How do we master it while we are here on earth? It is also one of the most difficult lessons in Scripture to implement because it requires you to change deeply ingrained habits. Leave your comfort zone and allow God to change your identity. Finally, it's one of the most rewarding passages of Scripture because when this passage becomes your life, you are freed from the power of sin. Doug Moo, who's a New Testament scholar, has really helped me understand this chapter in a new way. He phrases it like this. He says, to help us wrap our minds around uh, this, Scripture instructs us on how to be released from wrong living and how to be dedicated to right living. First, released from wrong living, we're going to read the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died from sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have been... Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we have also lived with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but for the life he lives, he lives to God. So... You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's a tongue twister. It's a, it's a mind bender of what we've just read. Let's see if we can unpack that. First, these first three questions 
that Paul asks in, in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, they're designed for us to draw out the implications of the Christian life. As we learned last week in chapter 5, says that now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace could also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the people of Rome would be thinking, well, gosh, can I just sin more? I mean, if grace is going to cover it, let's just go for it. Let me drink and do all the stuff. I mean, like, get drunk all the time. Let me lie all the time. Let me cheat all the time. Let me steal all the time because grace is going to cover it. I could do anything I want. This is going to be great. And Paul says, are you out of your mind? By no means is that, does that mean that. No. No. Why? Because if we have died to sin, think of this. Christ died to sin. That means he paid the penalty of our sin. And he has power over sin. If that is the case, and we have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that death of sin, he has paid the penalty for our sin. And now he has power over that. The power that he gives to us. So if that's the case, then how can we live in it any longer? His point is, we can't. And then he goes through these um, verses 4 through 10. He declares how this is so. Follow with me. He says, if we were buried, therefore, with him, this idea of burial is that it sets a seal on death and is going to prepare us for what follows. We're not going to stay dead. Of course we're going to live. And so that death covers us. It's a seal. We're no longer going to do the things that we did on a habitual basis that we used to do. Why? Because now we have the power not to do those things. It's dead. It's been buried Those of you who have um, sinned greatly and have gone to Jesus, gone to the cross, and you've confessed your sin, and he has forgiven you, that is this idea of burying the sin. Because what does he tell us after that? That he sees us as righteous. That we are as white as snow. That that scarlet red that is in our heart has been washed away. He remembers our sin no more. It is buried. Then how can it come to life? It can't. The burial, there's a seal over it. It's not coming back to life. Now this is a God's declaration. He's declaring to us that this is the way that it works. And in our minds we think, well gosh, wait a second. It's not the way that it works in my life. And Paul would say, yeah, hang on. I'm going to help you get there. 
Do you see when we talk about justification, we've talked about that term over the past three or four weeks. Justified means that God has made a legal declaration moving you from one side of the ledger to the other side. God now sees you as righteous because you have trusted in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He has buried all that stuff. When he speaks about the baptism in Christ Jesus here, it's just a summary of our conversion. That's a word that he uses to summarize how we came to Jesus and to know that we came, in Jesus, came to Jesus. Because when we come baptized, we have to make a public profession of faith. And we oftentimes tell our testimony. And so that we know that it is true that Christ has come into our lives. And we know it's true that you have, we have, given our lives over to Jesus. He continues. He says, we're buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. Why? Uh, So just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we can walk in newness of life. So we don't remain dead. We now walk in this newness of life, in this freedom, in this liberty that God gives us. We now have joy in our heart that we've never had before. We have hope in our heart that we've never had before. We have relief that we've never had before. I'm going to tell of a story of a World War II veteran near the end that will bring all of this into sharp focus of how turning your life over to Jesus buries all the bad stuff in your life and allows you to walk into newness of life. We have been united. How does this work? Well, we've been united to Jesus. When we trust Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we are with him. We are yoked. As Matthew would write, Jesus' words in Matthew 11, Jesus expresses it this way. Some of you have this passage memorized. He says, now remember when Jesus said this, he was saying this to the Jews who were being, um, their hearts were super heavy because they couldn't follow all of the rules. And just not like the Ten Commandments and and all of that, but the, the religious ruling authorities at the time that Jesus was alive created a lot of extra rules for people to follow. We would call that legalism today. Things that, 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 that aren't really in Scripture, but that can be derived from Scripture, and you've got like 4,700 rules to remember in order to be a good Christian. So in this context, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of course, a yoke was what they would put on the necks of two oxen so they would pull together. Thus lessening the load for both of them. Do you see how that yoke unites us to Jesus? And do you see how when he begins to go, how he lightens our load Because he is bearing all of what we have. 
And so when we're united with him in death, of course we're going to be united with him in his resurrection. He has dominion over sin and death because he defeated death. Imagine that. I want you to imagine for a second, if you were to fall to the ground right now with a heart attack or stroke, whatever, and you were to die, and three days later, you're still laying here, and you just rose. You're resurrected. Your body works just like this, and you go about your life just normally. People would call that a miracle. People say, wow, you now have a new lease on life. And you would say, yes, I do. And I'm so thankful for it. I'm now seeing life in a new way. I'm going to hold my loved ones a little tighter. I'm going to spend time on the things that are most important to me and the things I'm most passionate about. I'm not going to get in those petty arguments that I used to get into. I'm going to forgive those who have hurt me because I, I, that, that has been hanging around my neck for so long. It's like a millstone of 200 pounds and it's just not worth it. See, there's a newness of life that comes when we're resurrected. And Jesus gives us that because we're united to him. God is declaring this to us. He said, this is true. This is right. This is the way that it is. And I find it interesting, as Paul is writing this, he's writing this to a church. When you look through here, and all the yous in here aren't singular yous, like me and you. It is you as in you all. You all, Roman church, are this way. You all, Campbell Community Church are this way. Your sins have been buried. You have been resurrected. There is a newness of life that you can walk in. This is true. This is right. This is the way that it is. How many times in our minds do we think, ah, oh, that's not right. That's not true. That's because the devil likes to mess with us. He likes to introduce doubt. He likes to introduce chaos. And if you remember back to the story of Cain and Abel, Cain is raging because his brother got the blessing. And the Lord came to him and he said this. My pages are sticking together today. Must be the humidity in here. He says this, he, could, he said, um, if you do well, the Lord speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I wish Cain had Romans 6, because if he did, he may have not killed his brother. He may have been able to subdue the sin because he's realized that he doesn't have to act on that because it's dead. Imagine that. You don't have to act on it because it's dead. It's been dealt with. And you've been brought a newness of life to where you don't have to go down that road. 
But remember, sin's desire is for you. So it's going to be knocking at your door. It's going to be introducing all sorts of things into your mind to rationalize so that you can act out in anger or you can be bitter or you could whatever. He continues, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. An old self is our entire nature. We now know that. So that it would no longer be enslaved in sin. Why, why would he do that? Verse 6 tells us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our, um, we have been created to worship. We've been created with incredible desires. And we can worship things that are ungodly and do things that are ungodly. Or we can worship godly things and do godly things. But we don't have the power within ourselves to be able to do that. That's the reason why the, the gospel is so important. Because Christ crucified all that junk. It's done. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to it. So we no longer, like, a, uh, like one of those bugs, you, you know those bug zappers? Uh, in the Midwest, they have bug zappers all over the place to, to trap the mosquitoes during the summertime. And you turn one of those things on, and it's a big glowing light that's full of electricity, and those bugs are attracted to the light, and they fly into light, and they're enslaved to the light. They can't not go to the light. And oftentimes in our lives, particularly those who aren't Christ followers, that's what happens. They're attracted to that light and they keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. As Proverbs say, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. It just keeps going back and back and back. God declares that we have... That since Christ has died, that we have been set free from sin in verse 7. And if we've died in Christ, we believe also that we live with him. So what's the implication for this? If God declares all of this stuff and says that it is true, God does something remarkable in verse 11. He invites us. That's part B. God invites. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to constantly view ourselves in this light. This is the gift of grace that has been given to us because God loves us. If he invites us into this life, then what are we to do? Well, he, he doesn't leave us to wonder in verses 12 through 14. Here's God's application into our life. If sin is dead in our life, and we have newness of life, then not let sin reign in your body or make it obey its passions. See, now you have the ability to subdue it, something that Cain could not do, something that David could not do when he saw the body of Bathsheba on that balcony. He says, I got to have her. We're able to subdue sin because we realize what Christ has done for us. He has died for us. He's paid the penalty of sin. He's given us the power over sin. 
He continues, he said, do not make your members to sin, which is um, your eyes and your ears and your arms and your legs, everything that is about you. Don't present your bodies as instruments to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness. That is a choice you make. And if you're like me, I fail all the stinking time. That something comes off my tongue that shouldn't come off. I, right? That's a choice we make. He says, do not. We have the power now not to present our members. It's a body of sin. Well, if we don't do that, then what do we do? Well, we present ourselves to God as being brought from death to life because we're thankful we can't believe that we have been resurrected and we have this new lease on life. And now we're going to go say, wow, I'm going to readjust my priorities. Wow, I'm going to live in a way that I've never lived before. I'm going to live like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to go make amends to everybody that's hurt me and those that I have hurt, I'm going to go ask for forgiveness. And there's going to be a peace that surpasses understanding in my heart. That's what it means for being brought from death to life. And your members as God's instruments for God's righteousness. So now your tongue speaks honey and joy and blesses people rather than curses people. Here is God's promise. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. That is, it will not rule you. It's a part of your life. It's always going to be a part of your life until Jesus returns. But now Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Sin is not our Lord, but Jesus is. So it no longer has dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but now you're under grace. Yes. Well, if that is being released from wrong living, what is being released from right living? Or being dedicated right living. We find this in verses uh, 15 through 23. Again, he starts off with two questions, and these are designed for us to figure out what the implications are in our life. Verse 15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Again, by no means. Don't go down that road. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're, you're the slaves of the ones who you obey, either in sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? Here's God's beautiful work on your behalf. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you have committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So now we want the things of God more than we want the things of our earthly desires that would lead us away from God. 
And God did that for us. We didn't do that. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that He crucified that for us. And that He resurrected us. That is His beautiful work. The result of this work can be found in verses 19 through 22. I'm speaking in, her, uh, in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is one of those fancy words that simply means that you become more and more and more holy, that, that your, uh, your desire is to be more and more God-like and less and less like you used to be. So you're more joyful, you're more loving, you're more care, caring, you're more full of grace, you're more full of mercy. You decide that you have two ears and one mouth and you're going to keep that in proportion. You decide that you're, you're going to pursue wisdom and insight because God is infinitely wise and he has insights and perceptions that we would never, ever, ever consider. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in that regard to righteous. As many of you know, I came to Christ when I was 29 years old. Prior to coming to Christ, when I read this verse, that really hit me. Because, man, I could do anything I wanted to do. As long as it was pleasurable to me, it was just fine. And I didn't hurt anybody else. It was just a-okay. I was a slave to my desires. And sometimes, well, oftentimes, they got me in trouble. And I didn't realize that. And then he asked the question, but what fruit are you getting from that time of the things which you are now ashamed as Dr. Phil would say, I just forgot. <laughs> How's that working for you? Thank you. How's that working for you, right? And we could be judged by our fruits. And then he says in verse 22, uh, contrast, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you lead leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So we see distinctly that this has two paths of life. Which path do you want to go down? I told you earlier that there's a story of a gentleman that this passage absolutely exemplifies. His name is Louis Zamperini. Some of you might have read about him. There was a book written um, several years ago called Unbroken. And it was a fascinating biography of this man... Um, here's a summary of his life written by the author of, of the book. Her name is Laura Hildebrand. And she writes this, she goes, my journey into forgiveness began with a phone call, a breathtaking story, and a question. In 2002, I'd spent the previous year on a promotion of my first book, Sea Biscuit, and it was taking off. So one day, I found myself thinking about a man named Louis Zamparini. In researching my book, I stumbled across references to an odyssey that he'd survived in World War II. Though I only had heard bits of his story, I was intrigued, so I tracked him down. 
When we met, he told me his most amazing survival story I'd ever heard, a tale that included a plane crash, shark attacks, a capture, and a tor- being tortured by the enemy. What fascinated me even more was the way that Louis told it. He was infectiously cheerful, speaking of his captor's cruelty without a trace of bitterness. I asked him how he could speak so easily of such a vicious man. His answer was simple. I have forgiven him. I was hooked. My mind began turning on the question, how does a man forgive what is seemingly unforgivable? In search of the answer, I began a seven-year journey through his life. A journey that culminated in my book, Unbroken, World War II, survival, uh, Story of Survival, Resilience, and Redemption. The more deeply I understood what Louis had endured, the more wondrous his forgiveness had seemed. She goes through a story about him growing up in the 1920s. He was a phenomenal athlete. In fact, he competed at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany as a runner for the United States. As World War II began, um, he joined what was now be known as the Air Force. He was stationed in Hawaii um, in a bomber. And on May 27, 1943, he and his crew took off in search of a missing plane. Far out in the Pacific, engine failure sent their plane plunging into the ocean. Trapped by wires in the wreckage, Louis passed out. When he came to, the wires were gone. He swam to the surface and climbed into a raft, joining the other two survivors. They had sent no distress call. Nobody knew where they were. For weeks, the men floated, often followed by sharks, surviving on rainwater and a few fish and birds they can catch. On the 27th day, a plane appeared. Louis fired flares, and the plane returned towards them. But it turned out to be a Japanese bomber, and the crewmen fired machine guns at the castaways. Louis leapt overboard. He had to kick and punch the circling sharks to keep them away until the firing stopped so he can climb back into the raft. Over and over, the bomber returned to shoot at the men, sending Louis back into the shark-infested waters. By the time the bomber flew off, the raft was riddled with bullets and was starting to sink. Amazingly, none of the men had been hit, but the sharks had tried to drag them away. Beating them off with oars, the men frantically patched the raft and pumped air into it. Finally, the sharks left. They drifted, starving. One man died. Louis and the other crewmen hung on. On the 46th day, they saw a distant island. They rowed towards it. When they were just yards from the shore, a Japanese boat captured them. For the next two and a half years, Louis was captive. He was held in a filthy jail cell, subjugated to medical experiments, starved, beaten, and interrogated. Then he was shipped to a prison camp in Japan where he was forced to race against Japanese runners, winning even though that he knew that he would be clubbed as punishment. He joined the daring POW underground, stealing food and circulating information to other captives. It was in prison that Louis encountered his monstrous guard known as the bird. Fixated on breaking the famous Olympian, the bird beat Louis relentlessly and forced him to do slave labor. 
Louis reached the end of his endurance. With his dignity destroyed and will failing, he prayed for rescue. When the atomic bombs ended the war, the bird fled to escape war, war crime trials, and Louis was saved from almost certain death. He went home a deeply haunted man. He had nightmares about being bludgeoned by the bird. Trying to rebuild his life, he married a beautiful woman, and even her love could not blot out the bird from his mind. He sought solace in running, but an ankle injury incurred in that POW camp, uh, camp um, led him to where he couldn't run any longer. He was devastated. So he started to drink. He had flashbacks. The raft in the prison camp would appear around him to relieve terrifying memories. He drank and drank and drank. He simmered with rage, provoking fistfights with strangers and confrontations with his wife. He couldn't shake the sense of shame that had been beaten into him by the bird. Louis thought God was toying with him. We heard preachers on the radio. He turned them off. He forbade Cynthia, his wife, to go to church. He drank more and more. In time, Louis' rage hardened into a twisted ambition. He would return to Japan, hunt down the bird, and strangle him. The only way he could restore his... That was the only way he saw he could restore his dignity. He became obsessed, trying to raise money for the trip, but his financial ventures kept failing. One night in 1948, Louis dreamed that he was locked in a battle, death battle with the bird. A scream startled him awake. He was straddling his pregnant wife, hands clenched around her neck. His daughter was born a few months later. One day, his wife found him shaking the baby, trying to stop her from crying. So she snatched the baby and took off. A year later, his wife made a last-ditch effort to save her husband. She asked Louis to come to a tent meeting in Los Angeles where a young minister by the name of Billy Graham was preaching. For two nights, Louis sat in that tent, feeling guilt and anger as Graham spoke of sin and its consequences and God bringing miracles to the stricken. On the second night, Graham asked people to step forward and declare their faith. Louis stood up and stormed towards the exit. But at the aisle, he stopped short. Suddenly, he was in a flashback, adrift on the raft. It hadn't rained in days. He was dying of thirst and anguish. He whispered a prayer. If you will save me, I will serve you forever. Over the raft, the rain began falling. Standing in Graham's tent, lost in the flashback, Louis felt rain on his face. At that moment, he began to see the whole ordeal differently. When he'd been trapped in the wreckage of the plane, somehow he had been freed. When the Japanese bomber had shot a raft and full of holes, somehow none of the men had been hurt. When Bird had driven him to the breaking point, he prayed for help. Somehow he found the strength to keep on breathing. And on that day on the raft, he prayed for rain, and rain had come. Louis' conviction was that he was forgiven, or uh, he was forsaken, was gone. Replaced by the belief that divine love had been around him all of the time even in his darkest moments. That night in Graham's tent, the bitterness and pain that had haunted him vanished. A year later, 
Louis went to Japan. He was a joyful man. His marriage restored, nightmares and flashbacks gone. His alcoholism was overcome. He went to Tokyo prison where war criminals were serving their sentences. He hoped to find the bird to know for sure if the peace that he had found was resilient. But the bird wasn't there. Louis was told that the guard had killed himself. Louis was struck with emotion. He was surprised by what he felt. It was not hatred. It wasn't relief. It was compassion. Louis had found forgiveness. This can only be done if the Lord had worked in his life in such a way to where he knew that his sins were dead. His anger was dead. His bitterness was dead. It was buried. It had been sealed. And he'd been brought newness of life. I hope you see how Louis' heart had been brought to joy because it had been firmly rooted in God's love. The stress and the heartache of just trying harder and doing more melted off his shoulders as it perhaps has melted off your shoulders. Cleansing him of all the guilt or rage that was warring inside of him and perhaps you. You see, peace does surpass understanding and will occupy your heart. And guess what? You will become a slave to that. So here's a challenge. Plant verse 23 in your heart. As I'm sure Ernie did. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life But the the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are you open to allowing God to work in your life? Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, let us uh, be thankful for your work sending your son to be crucified, to be buried, and to be raised again so that our sins may be crucified, that they may be buried, and that we may be brought into newness of life, much like Ernie was. And that we see this as a free gift, ultimately resulting in eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.